The structure of the book of Matthew has narrative, followed by teaching, followed by narrative, followed by teaching. And so we're moving into the third narrative section this morning in chapter 11. Uh, We'll be in Matthew 11, verses 1 through 19. That is page number 1,512 on the Pew Bibles. Again, Matthew chapter 11, and the first 19 verses of that chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the town of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, He is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. This is the word of the Lord. Well, imagine uh, you are on an airplane. And then imagine the uh, engines go out on the airplane. And then you discover that they're not able to put the landing gear down either, which means the plane is going to crash, and the only hope you have is to strap on a parachute and jump. Now, you might doubt the parachute. You might be able to look at the parachute and and find things wrong with it. Maybe it seems like an old parachute. Maybe you're a big guy and it's a little small for you. 
Maybe you're wondering if the person who repacked it repacked the, air, uh, the um, parachute properly. But if that parachute is your only hope, what's the only way to overcome your doubt? You basically have two options. You can take your chances on the plane, or you can jump. Life is one extended, on average, 80-year-long plane crash. We are all going to die. And Jesus claims to be the only parachute. And in our passage this morning, John the Baptist returns into the narrative, and he seems to be doubting Jesus. And Jesus encourages John and us that he can be trusted and that we can jump. So first we'll see the reality of doubt, the response to doubt, the reason for doubt, and the replacement for doubt. So first, the reality of doubt. In verse 1 of our passage, Matthew locates us back in the towns of Galilee where Jesus is continuing uh, to teach and to preach. Remember, he's just sent his 12 apostles out to teach and to preach and to heal. And before that they left to go do that, he warned them of all the persecutions that they would be facing as they completed the mission that Jesus is sending them out on. And now Matthew reminds us about John the Baptist, who just so happens to be experiencing the exact kind of persecution Jesus warned his disciples that they would be facing as well. Matthew writes, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah— He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? We met John uh, back in Matthew chapter 3, where John was telling people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He was warning them about the coming judgment, and he was baptizing them for repentance of sins. And then in chapter 4, we were told that John was put in prison. And John being put in prison was the reason that Jesus left uh, Judea and Jerusalem and went up to Galilee to begin his ministry. Which means John has been in prison ever since before Jesus began his ministry. We'll find out later in chapter 14 that the reason John was put in prison is because he told King Herod, Uh, that it was a sin to marry his uh, brother's wife, especially since his brother was still alive. Herod didn't appreciate that, and ever since then, John has been stuck in prison. So he's never seen Jesus' ministry. All that John knows of Jesus' ministry is what he's heard about the deeds of the Messiah. It's safe to assume then that he's sending his disciples to question Jesus because in spite of the deeds of the Messiah, John is doubting. Is Jesus the right parachute or should he find another? 
Now, if you remember when John baptized Jesus, he knew Jesus was the one. In fact, he knew Jesus was sinless because he knew Jesus did not need to be baptized for the repentance of sins. And he knew that he was not worthy to baptize Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of John, when we read the narrative of Jesus' baptism, when Jesus comes on the scene, John looks and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John knows who Jesus is, and yet we have to wonder what happened in the meantime to make John doubt. Well, if you remember, John was preaching about the coming judgment. This is what John told the crowds back in Matthew chapter 3. He said, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is the message that John was preaching. Which means this is what he expected Jesus to do. This is what he thought Jesus' ministry would look like. But none of this was happening. John just heard about teaching and preaching and healing. You can imagine that John was confused about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. John was probably confused that Jesus was not fasting or teaching his disciples to fast. Not only that, but one of the things the Messiah was supposed to do was set the captives free. But Jesus seemed content to leave John sitting there in prison, which had to be confusing for John as well. The Bible tells us that we live by Faith and not by sight, which means doubt is always lurking for Christians. Now, I imagine each of us here this morning has gone through periods of doubt. And if you haven't, it's likely that you will. You, you might look at your life and wonder, if God is who he says he is, then why am I alone? Why am I sad? Why am I anxious? Why am I hurting? Why can I not completely overcome this temptation in my life? And if John the Baptist could doubt, then certainly we can too. God was not embarrassed to record John's doubt on the pages of Scripture. The presence of doubt is normal, it's to be expected. But it's what we do with our doubt. That matters. And notice John takes his doubt right to Jesus. And that is exactly where we must go with our doubts as well. And so how does Jesus encourage John and us to respond to our doubts? Notice, 
Jesus does not tell John, everything's going to be okay. He does not tell him, I'm coming to get you, John. He doesn't try and justify why the judgment hasn't come yet. He doesn't explain why John's still in prison. He doesn't go over the reasons why his ministry looks different than John's ministry did. In fact, Jesus does not give John any more information than John already had. This is why we can't make promises that go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. We cannot promise that Jesus will change anyone's circumstances or end their pain or relieve their loneliness. We can only remind people of the promises of God and of the deeds of the Messiah like Jesus does here. So Jesus replies and he says, go back. Report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Remember, Matthew just told us that John's doubts arose because he was hearing about the deeds of Jesus. And clearly, whatever John was hearing left him wondering. Yet, Jesus tells John's disciples to go back and tell John what they see and hear. Jesus basically says, go back and tell him about my deeds. Do you know what this means? This means the testimony about the deeds of Jesus is enough. Even if those deeds don't fully live up to our expectations, even if we still have questions, John's disciples were eyewitnesses to what Jesus said and did, and Jesus is saying that the testimony of that is all the reason that we need to believe. Jesus is telling John, don't doubt what you know about me. Rather, doubt your doubts. We are to believe the testimony of those who saw and heard Jesus, and that testimony is written down on the pages of Scripture for anyone to read, which is why Jesus doesn't just point John to the things he was saying and doing. He also reminds John about the fact that the Old Testament already said that these are the things that the Messiah would see and do. Jesus tells John, the blind receive their sight. And these are all in the present tense. So we could actually translate this. The blind are receiving their sight. The lame are walking. Those who have leprosy are being cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Listen to the words of Isaiah 35. Speaking of the time of the Messiah, it says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Later in Isaiah 61, 
He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Notice Isaiah says that there will be a day of vengeance associated with all of this. That's what John was expecting. That's what he was proclaiming. And Jesus is helping John and all of us see that, yes, God's vengeance is still part of the plan. Judgment is coming. But there's this other part that has to happen too. And it has to come in between before the judgment. Otherwise, there would be no one left because all of us deserve judgment. Jesus is the one. We don't have to wait for another. Everything predicted about him in the Old Testament has still not yet come true, but enough of it has that John can rest on what he knows, and so can we. Jesus is enough. His word is enough. His promises are enough. And what John already knows to be true is enough. The plane is going down because we're all sinners who deserve to be judged. But Jesus came to save his people from their sins. This is why he goes on to say, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The person who doubts their doubts instead of doubting Jesus is blessed. The one who is able to look at all the evidence we have from Scripture about Jesus with confidence, hope, and assurance in spite of what he does not see, that is the blessed person. Because that is what it is to have faith. Now, we've already mentioned a few reasons why John may have doubted Jesus, but in the next section of verses that we're going to go through here, Jesus himself is going to give us his explanation for John's doubts. And he's going to give us even more reasons why we could be confident in him. Okay? It's our third point, the reason for doubt. So Jesus and John were both popular, well-known preachers at the time. Uh, they were connected to each other. Their messages complemented each other. John affirmed Jesus' ministry by pointing to him as the one who would come and then baptizing him. And then Jesus affirms John's ministry by letting John baptize him. And when Jesus turns to the crowd here, he knows that a large portion of them used to follow John, which is why he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? So clearly these are people who went out to see John in the wilderness. And now since John is in prison, they're following Jesus. They're following the one that John pointed them to. Now, when you have two popular figures like this working together, who are on the same team, accomplishing the same goal, what happens when one of them publicly doubts the other one? That's not good. This would be like the vice president publicly doubting the president. The media would eat them alive. This is when the head coach doubts and calls out the general manager publicly. 
when you're a kid and mom doubts dad, the kids all think, oh no, who can we trust? Right? If the vice president can't trust the president, how am I supposed to trust him? That's a situation created by John sending his disciples to question Jesus. So, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus is doing two things here. First, he's building up John. And second, he's helping the crowd see that in spite of John's doubts, he is who they thought he was. So first he asks rhetorical questions. Now, for those of you who don't know what a rhetorical question is, it's a question that when you ask it, the answer is obvious. So if I said, is rain wet? Obviously rain is wet. Is the Pope Catholic? Of course the Pope is Catholic. These are rhetorical questions. This is what Jesus is doing here. When he asked the crowd, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Obviously not. They didn't go out to see a weak man easily swayed by political pressure and public opinion. They went out to see a man of character and conviction. When he asks, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Of course not. John was wearing camel hair, right? He had a leather belt. He was eating locusts and honey. No, they went out to see a prophet who was confirmed as a prophet because he didn't care about nice clothes or comfort or what other people thought of him. He's telling the crowd that John is a prophet. He is who you thought he was. In fact, he's more than a prophet because this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. You see, John is not only a prophet, But John is greater than a prophet because he's the subject of prophecy. The Old Testament predicted that before the Messiah came, a prophet would come and the spirit of Elijah who would prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus is telling the crowd that John is that person. Which of course means that Jesus is the Lord. If only they were able to put two and two together. So John is more than a prophet. He's still the man of character and conviction they always thought he was. He still doesn't care about comfort and security. That's not why he's worried that he's still in prison. So how can a guy like that be doubting Jesus? Jesus tells us, Truly I tell you, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet... Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John is the last of a kind. John is the last Old Testament believer. And there is something different about those who pointed forward to the kingdom of heaven than those who get to enter it by putting their trust in the life 
in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There was a difference between the way the Spirit of God caused Old Testament believers to put their trust in God's promises than the way the Spirit of God after Pentecost causes us to put our trust in the promises of God. So much of a difference that no matter how great John was, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. You see, John had a different understanding of things than than we are able to have, right? Because he just didn't know. John expected when the kingdom came that it was gonna be this conquering kingdom. He expected it to come in power and without opposition. But Jesus teaches from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. As soon as John came on the scene, the kingdom of heaven has been under attack. Remember, Herod was trying to kill Jesus. When you read the pages of the Gospels, it's like demon possessions are everywhere. The religious leaders saw and heard Jesus, yet they still did not want to believe. They wanted him dead. And everyone in Israel, they're looking for a Messiah who's going to free them from Rome and give them material wealth and prosperity. And so John is doubting because as the last Old Testament prophet, he stands just outside the kingdom. And he's watching the kingdom, he thought for sure could not be conquered, under attack. Well, Jesus is overeating with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah. He is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, Let them hear. So all the prophets and the law and John stood outside looking forward to the kingdom of heaven. And even though he is the Elijah who was to come, the kingdom of heaven can only fully be known and understood from the inside. Only those who are willing to accept it can see who John really is. Only those who already have ears to hear can see and hear the words of Jesus and believe. And those who are willing to accept it, and those who have ears to hear, are those who have something John didn't have, which is the ability to enter the kingdom of heaven by faith and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Like a little child, right? A little child who knows Jesus died for them has more than John the Baptist even though John was more than a prophet. John was the greatest man ever born of woman, greater than King David, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham. That's what that must mean. But anyone who enters the kingdom of heaven by simply repenting of their sins, putting their trust in what Jesus has done to save sinners from their sins is greater than John. That's why John doubted. He did not yet have enough knowledge to put all the puzzle pieces together. Now, does this mean that you and I, as New Testament believers, shouldn't doubt? Or that we won't doubt? No. It just means we have much greater resources to use to doubt our doubts. We have a parachute that's more obviously trustworthy 
Unlike John, we understand why the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. We understand that the Messiah had to suffer and die to forgive us of our sins, and that there's a great battle underway right now until he returns. We know that Jesus came to take away our spiritual blindness, our spiritual poverty, and to free us from slavery to sin and death. We know that our biggest problem in life is that we are sinners who must give an account to a holy God, and yet Jesus has come and suffered in our place, and that he forgives us, and then he empowers us to live holy lives that he commands us to live. We know about his promises to be with us always to the end of the age. We know about the armor of God and peace that surpasses understanding. We know these gifts are available to us by faith in him who died for us. So why do we still struggle with doubt when all of this is available to us? And how come some still do not believe? How can someone grow up in church and walk away? It takes us to our final point, the replacement for doubt. So doubt is not the same as unbelief, but doubt can lead to unbelief. And when it does, unbelief replaces doubt. But doubt can also lead us to assurance. If we, by faith, doubt our doubts, we can grow in our assurance. And then our assurance replaces doubt. So what's the difference? How come sometimes for some people assurance replaces doubt, and other times for other people unbelief replaces doubt. Jesus tells us. He says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Of all the people of this generation that got to hear and see Jesus, how come so many refused to believe? How come so many refused to believe now? Jesus tells us it's because that they were like little children who played the pipe for other children because they thought if they played that pipe, those children would dance. But they didn't dance. They sang a dirge, which is a funeral song, and no one cried. Why not? You're supposed to dance when somebody plays the pipe. You're supposed to mourn at a funeral. So what's Jesus talking about here? He tells us. For, which means, that word for means that Jesus is about to explain what he just said about children and pipes and dancing and dirges and mourning. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. So like children who didn't get the response they expected, John wasn't what people expected either. He was a little too out there. He was a little too wild-eyed and profity for them. How could anyone identify with a guy who eats locusts and honey and lives in the wilderness? That guy must have a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, ah, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John... John doesn't eat and drink enough for them, but Jesus, well, that guy, he eats and drinks too much for them. He doesn't even care about sin. Look at him, drunkard, 
tax collectors, sinners. So Jesus is saying that if he and his message don't meet your expectations, the problem is your expectations. If people don't dance when you play your pipe, there's a reason why. We have to doubt our doubts. And there's two different kinds of doubters. There's doubters who want to believe and who doubt their doubts and who bring their doubt to Jesus. They double down on what they know. They press into scripture so they can understand and take in the whole counsel of God and then rest more firmly on what they know to be true. Basically, they put on their parachute and jump. Because the way to replace your doubt with assurance is to step out in faith. Do you want to grow in your confidence that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, then live your life as if Jesus is who he says he is. And then there's doubters who, who are just looking for a reason to dismiss Jesus. There's doubt that has no fear of God. Doubt that wants to throw off the law so it can sin without feelings of guilt. And that kind of doubter can always find a reason to replace their doubt with unbelief. John has a demon. Jesus is a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's not who I expected God to send to save me, so I can live however I want. In our day, people dismiss Jesus because of science or because the Bible was written by men and translated by men, or because they don't like the God of the Old Testament, or they don't like the Bible's sexual ethic, or they say the Bible is too patriarchal. We can always find a way to dismiss the testimony of Scripture and the witnesses who saw and heard Jesus. But Jesus says, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. You see, John John the Baptist proved wisdom right by his deeds, by staying in prison, remaining faithful, all the way to the end. Jesus proved wisdom right by his deeds, right? By going all the way to the cross, suffering and dying in our place. It's those who put on their parachute and jump who prove the truth of Scripture and come to be more assured of it themselves. The kingdom of heaven is real because the citizens of the kingdom live as citizens of the kingdom. They enter the kingdom by grace, through faith, poor in spirit, by repenting and believing the good news of the kingdom. But part of the good news that they believe is that when Jesus says that he will make them holy, that he is telling the truth. He not only forgives our sin, but he makes us members of his household, causes us to bear the family resemblance. Christians are not saved by their fruit, but Christians are known by their fruit. There is great joy in being handed a parachute when you're on a plane that is crashing, but if you don't put it on and jump, you didn't really believe that that parachute would save you. Jesus is staking the proof of the reality of his kingdom on the fact 
that his people will prove wisdom right by their deeds. That's how important it is for Jesus to make his people holy. And not only do our changed lives prove the reality of the kingdom to a watching world, one of the greatest assurances we have of the truth of Christianity ourselves is how it has changed our own life. When we can truly say, I once was blind, but now I see. When we can look at the sin in our own heart and we just know that if not for God's love and restraining power and the gift of his church and that sin, if it were unleashed, Oh, what a wreck I would be. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It's the sinner who feels the shackles fall off, who is no longer enslaved, who is most assured of the power of the gospel. For those of us who believe, our doubts are an invitation back to Jesus, back to his word, back to his church, week in and week out. It's an invitation to trust his ways, to live as he's calling us to live, because we see the reality of the kingdom more clearly from the inside. Right? It's even more true once we jump. Let's pray. Father, we come and we're so grateful that our salvation comes to us by faith and faith alone. And yet we're grateful, Father, that your word teaches us that those who are truly saved are those who love your law, who put to death their sin, and who long to prove wisdom right by their deeds. Father, we pray, God, that you would comfort us in our doubts, that you would comfort us in our suffering that inflames our doubts, we pray, God, that your spirit would minister to us by your word, and that you would move us, God, to display the power of the gospel because we, God, need your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.